Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. Well, good morning, gang, and Merry Christmas. We are getting closer to Christmas, just a few days away. I hope that you are ready for Christmas. I hope that your garden is getting in the Christmas spirit. Have you ever thought about using Christmas lights in the landscape? I've seen some really cool things in the landscape with Christmas lights lately. Of course, for many years, I've noticed that people are using some kind of drape, lights draped over shrubs. That's really attractive. And then, just this year, maybe it's those same drapes of lights, if you will, but I've noticed that they're using them on the ground below shrubs and underneath trees. So that's a cool way to light up the Christmas, get into the Christmas spirit, rather, in the landscape. I don't know. I do see a lot of those blow-up Santa Clauses and blow-up Frosty the Snowmans and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeers. They're cool. The kids love them, of course. I don't know. Maybe it's too much. I don't know. But light up your light up your landscape for Christmas. Get in the holiday spirit. We're just a few weeks, a few weeks, a few days away, and you need to probably think about some Christmas ideas for your loved ones, your gardening friends. We've talked about that for a, well. We've talked about Christmas gifts for the gardener. On previous years past, you can find those ideas online at NewSouthernGarden.com. Just scroll through every episode of the program we've had ever till you get to December's. And you can find some gifts, some holiday gifts, some Christmas gifts for your gardener friends. You know, a good gardening journal might be a good idea. Of course, any journal could become a gardening journal. But there are some garden journals that are printed you know, with a date, a place for the date, a place for garden beds, maybe a place for plants, and you can keep track of what you're doing. It's a good gift for a gardener. Of course, a good spade or good shovel goes a long ways. You may think about tools. Good, Oh, a good pair of pruning shears. That'd be a good thing for a gardener. I'm not talking about the little ones you see in the uh, box stores. I'm talking about the Mac Daddies, Coronas, or... Um, Felco, those pruning shears, they're pricier, but they last forever. They keep a nice edge on them, too. So think about tools when you're shopping for your gardening friends for Christmas. Let's see, what are some other things? Of course, plants, you know. Just go to your local garden center and find some plants that your gardener friend might love. Perennials are a great thing to give. There may not be much to show in the pot. Of course, this time of year, a lot of perennials in the plant nurseries have died back. But make sure that the roots in the pot are very white and vibrant and growing. They can plant it over the winter, and then they will grow and bloom next year. It's a good little surprise present, I guess, you know. Oh, let's see. Seeds, of course. Talking about plants. Sowing seeds, or rather selling, selling, buying seeds for your friends. Or maybe you're saving seeds from your own garden. 
You know, things like cone flowers and rutabecchia, they're easy to save, easy to identify when you're collecting them, and you can gift seeds from your garden. That would be a nice gift instead of a seed packet. But of course, they can sow those seeds. Many of those perennial plants, their seeds need to be stratified, which we've talked about before. It just means that they are kept cool for a few months and moist so they can go ahead and sow them in the ground on Christmas Day when you gift it to them. And then by spring, they'll start germinating when it warms up and another surprise, another Christmas surprise. And it's a lasting surprise, you know. You plant it over winter and then boom, in the spring, they get a reminder of that Christmas gift that you diligently worked to get for them. So there's a lot of things you could think about to get your gardener friends, you know, and there's a lot of cool new gadgets, you know, things like soil meters, uh, like moisture meters or pH meters. Those might be cool. We've talked about them before briefly and, you know, the, the jury is out on how effective they are, but still might be a nice gift to have. And there's all kind of new technological things that you can do. Uh, and don't forget about gift cards, you know, if you're not exactly sure what your gardener friend may be in the plant shopping world for, what kinds of plants or what varieties of certain plants, maybe a gift card or gift certificate to your local ma and pa nursery or garden center. I'm sure they would be glad to sell it to you. And of course, that's helping support your local economy. So thinking about Christmas, we're just a few days away. You've got to be getting those gifts for your gardener friends. Uh, Today, I do want to talk about uh, an interesting topic. Well, I think all topics in gardening are interesting, but this is a strange word in itself. And the term is Hugo culture, Hugo culture, Hugo, Hugo culture. I don't know exactly the pronunciation, but that's about right. Hugo culture. It's a German term, actually. And we'll talk more about that and uh, what it is, how it might be beneficial to you in certain applications. And uh, it it is a practice. It it is a way of gardening that comes from uh, the German folks and I don't know, the research, we'll talk about that too. Does the research support this kind of hugoculture and how can you use it um, or should you even consider using it at all? This week in my garden and landscape, I have been working on getting some raised beds built and installed. And this is a transition because the hugoculture we'll talk about, I'm going to actually implement some of those principles in these raised beds. But I like the idea of having raised beds for, you know, vegetables uh, in particular and flowers, maybe cut flowers. Um, Also, raised beds are beneficial if you are growing your own plants, say even perennials, and you want a place to start them. You could treat them like a, a nursery bed, if you will, a place where you'll put young plants. Maybe you're buying very small young perennials. You want them to grow up, beef up a bit, and then you'll plant them into the ground in your gardening beds and your landscape beds where they'll spend the rest of their lives. Uh, But raised beds in the garden are a wonderful thing, and I've been building them partially because, well, I do like them, but my wife wants them too. And I think that if I put these raised beds in for our garden and, uh, well, our, our vegetable garden, that maybe she'll help me a little more. She seems to be excited about the raised beds. So if I Put in a system that is easy to care for and easy to get to and access and hopefully keep the weeds out of the raised bed, then I think that I can encourage her to help me in the garden a bit more. And definitely the kids. Raised beds are great for kids because it brings up the uh, growing area maybe by a few inches. Uh, Anything like 4, 6, 10, 12, 36 inches, you can 
raise your bed as high as you want. Of course, folks with handicap, they may be able to bend over very well. Bringing that soil line up is easy to access the soil so you can plant. And I have seen some... Um, some video of places where uh, folks in maybe wheelchairs and can't get around very easily or bend over easily, they raise these beds up high enough so that you can just wheel right up to the soil line. And those folks can easily plant and dig and grow and harvest, and it's a good time. So raised beds have many benefits, of course. Uh, something else that is to consider is that you can sort of amend the soil a bit easier uh, so that you have your existing soil line below the raised bed, but above you have uh, maybe a mixture of organic matter and compost and manures that are going to help with encouraging plants to grow, giving them the, the nutrition they like. But also by having coarser materials above the soil in a raised bed, that is something that you uh, will benefit from drainage as well. You will have better draining soil by having that coarse material raised up high so that it can percolate, water can percolate and filter through that layer and then down into the probably more finer textures down below uh, the raised bed. So there are many benefits and I do think that it's easier to keep weeds out of raised beds. You still have to tend to them. Weeds will blow in on the wind. They may be brought in by animals. They will find, you may bring them in on a shovel. You never know how a weed seed is going to get in that bed. But of course, I think that part of the reason raised beds are so handy and so well-liked is that they give you a defined space. You know, for many years, the first time I ever planted a garden with my grandfather, it was all just in-ground uh, gardens, and he would bring his tiller over, and we would, you know, till a large square, and, I mean, maybe it was 15 feet by 10 feet or something. And, of course, that's a defined edge, but, you know, it's not clearly defined. Around the edges, the grasses will creep in and the weeds will start moving towards the center. And so I think that having raised beds with those maybe rigid wood edges or metal edges around the bed helps us mentally to say, look, here's my space and I'm going to do everything I can to keep the weeds out so that they're not overtaking this well-defined space. But do you need, in order to have a raised bed, do you need sides? Do you need wooden boards running the length and the widths to uh, confine that? No, you can easily create a raised bed just by mounding soil and mounding organic matter. Uh, you know, one great way to encourage your soil to become enriched with nutrition and organic matter is by piling leaves on top of it. There was a gentleman, a good friend of mine, uh, he was an older man, more like a grandfather figure to me, I guess, uh, and he, in his later years, he's a big gardener, but in his later years, he couldn't really operate the tiller, but he still wanted to grow tomatoes, he still wanted to grow vegetables, so I remember uh, one of the last years before he passed away, uh, he would, over winter, he would blow his leaves into his garden bed, where his garden, vegetable garden usually was, and he would let them just rot and decay. And so that year, he couldn't operate the tiller, but once spring came before planting, he asked me to come over and till those leaves under into the soil. And I did. And it was a good time, of course, to spend that time uh, with a good friend. But, you know, the idea is that he was forward thinking that when the leaves fell, and he had quite a few trees to drop leaves, when they fell, he didn't just blow them into the street so the city would take them up. No, he blew them into his vegetable garden so that then they would rot, decay, turn into compost or leaf mold, and that would help to en enrich 
his soil. And of course, he was gardening right down the street from me, so he has this Piedmont clay soil. And uh, that garden bed, though, was nice and rich, more loamy than the areas that weren't amended, you know. So using mounds is another way that you can create a raised bed. You don't have to build structures out of wood or out of metal. You can just mound your soil, maybe put an edge around the perimeter of your bed, throw that soil around the edge into the middle, mound that up, add organic matter, mound that up, add compost and manure, mound that up, and that in itself could be a raised bed. Now the horticulture term, at least what they taught me in plant school, This term was called planting proud, which means planting the plant higher than the existing soil line. So by mounding higher than the existing soil line, you are creating a proud planting or a proud bed. And the idea there is that when you plant higher than the soil line, you encourage better drainage. And this is a completely and appropriate uh, concept to use here in our southern soils that do tend to be clay, at least in the Piedmont, because our clay soils don't always drain well. So whether you're planting a mounded bed with vegetables or whether you're just creating a ornamental bed, you can always plant proud and raise the top of those plants root balls just a bit higher than the soil. That, of course, will allow for the good drainage and it will let the plant find areas, grow down in into areas that are maybe more appropriate for their roots rather than forcing that plant too deep into the soil. Planting higher or planting proud is always a good way to go. So with that in mind, talking about planting on mounds, this term that I've already mentioned, hugaculture, is just that, planting on mounds and not just small mounds, not just mounds that are eight or nine inches above the ground, but maybe several feet above the ground. Now, the first time that I heard hugaculture, this term, was when I was studying horticulture at the University of Georgia. And I was taking these classes that were geared to organic agriculture systems, organic gardening. And just for maybe a couple of days, we talked about hugaculture in one of these classes. And it's a funny word, hugaculture, hugaculture. Now, this is a German term. That's what our professor said. And he said that it's this idea of using large twigs, large stems, large branches of wood and all. And mounding, uh, planting those below the ground and mounding these distinct layers of other things like compost and leaves and grass and sod on top of these wood, uh, wooden structures. And then everything starts to rot down and you can plant on top of these tall mounds. Well, we got to take a quick break, but when we get back, I'm going to talk more about the details of this strange thing we call hugaculture, what it is, uh, how to do it, and what does the science say? or not say about hugaculture. Hang on tight. Hey gang, do you sometimes feel like you are riding a lonely trail while gardening, all alone with no one to join in the fun? Well, join the new Southern Garden community today and find peace of mind by sharing your experiences, whether they be poor ones or successful ones. New Southern Garden is on Facebook and Instagram, so I'd love for you to friend, follow, like, share whatever it is we're doing these days. Also, you can check out our website at newsoutherngarden.com. 
where you can not only find every episode of the show ever, but you can also send us a question via our Contact Us page. It's never fun gardening alone. So get social with the new Southern Garden family and let's grow well. Gang, today on New Southern Garden, we are talking about a strange term, a strange practice, too, in the garden, and that's called hugoculture. And I was mentioning that the very first time I'd heard about hugoculture was at the University of Georgia when I was studying uh, organic agriculture systems. And that's usually where you will find this discussion on hugoculture located, is on discussions, maybe on permaculture and biodynamics workshops, which biodynamics is super strange and different. Uh, We wouldn't have time to go into that today. But the idea, of course, is that you are creating mounds, planting mounds, and you are using copious amounts of stems and branches, piling that first. And then on top of the stems and branches, you would use grass and sod, maybe leaves on top of that, and then some kind of coarse compost. And finally, this top layer to create this mound would be fine compost and actual soil. But today we want to talk about more about what hugoculture is, uh, should we be using it, and maybe what the science says. And also we'll talk about how to create one of these beds. So in its basic form, this hugoculture is a German term, and it literally means hillock or mound cultivation. Hugoculture. And it's a method of this building a garden and landscape beds using that woody material, garden debris, and soil created and arranged and created creating these long kind of tunnel-like tunnel-shaped mounds now of course these beds are three-dimensional you know we're probably used to growing on one dimension or one plane the flat soil level but these are actually three-dimensional and the idea is that it creates additional space for growing plants so if you have a mound that is say uh, four feet by eight feet you have more than four by eight feet because you have this mound, this small hill to plant on. But even though there are many instructions available online on how to create one of these hugoculture beds, you can just Google that term on how to create a hugoculture bed and you'll find a lot of resources for doing so. But some of the earliest known examples of hugoculture were published in a German booklet that was actually translated into English and I want to read that for you so you can understand the process of what creating this hugoculture bed looks like. First, a rectangular depression is constructed by removing sod, woody debris like branches and deadfall or dead leaves, fallen, fallen trees rather, and it's laid out along the center line at a height of two feet from end to end. So you're creating this, starting the center of your mound by running the links of stem material and woody branches and piling them up to sort of a, a teepee, right? Just a nice round top uh, of, of layered branches. Then material is tapered to the ground along the sides. Then more woody debris, vegetation, and the original sod is added to the top and the sides of this mound. Then soil is added as well, and the entire mound is beaten with a shovel to create a smooth surface. Then more dead foliage is added along with soil, composted animal manure, and worms actually using worms right directly in the mound. Then coarse compost and soil are added and the mound is beaten 
into the desired form. The mound is left to rest over several months, during which it decomposes and settles from its original three-foot height to something more appropriate for a garden bed. Planting, watering, weeding, and fertilizing instructions can also are also detailed in this, but we won't get into that today. Um, but the reader of this pamphlet is also cautioned that the mounds have a lifespan of just five to six years, after which they'll need to be rebuilt from scratch. Now, this is an important point that we're going to talk about later. The fact that these mounds maybe only last for a few years and then have to be rebuilt. I do want to tell you how this Hugo culture originated because it's kind of a strange history. So even though there are these popular publications, they sort of give us a murky story to the beginnings of Hugo culture. It has been described as a centuries-old technique, that it's been an enduring practice for hundreds of years. But it's also been described as a permaculture method that was developed in 1978. But we also see that the term first appears in a German brochure in 1962 written by an avid gardener, Hermann Andra, or Andra, you know. I don't really know how to speak German, so I hope I didn't butcher his name. But in his brochure, Andre describes the diversity of plants that were found growing in a woody debris pile in the corner of his grandmother's garden. So this observation inspired him to promote this mound culture, or the Hugo culture, as an alternative way of growing, say, from flatland, or right on top of the surface of the soil. Now, this method was very helpful for him in disposing of branches and woody debris because apparently burning woody debris was prohibited for him. So it was a good way to get rid of these branches and wood. Now, the term hugoculture was not printed before 1962. So Andra's methods may have been influenced by a fellow countryman, Rudolf Steiner. Uh, for instance, Andra included this quote from a 1924 Steiner lecture on biodynamics in his booklet. He said, Therefore, you will have an easier time of mixing regular inorganic earth with composting substance or with any kind of material that is in the process of decaying if you are building earthen hillocks and permeate with them with it. Then the earth itself will have the tendency to come inwardly alive and become akin to the vegetative. Now, of course, in summary, what Steiner was saying was that if you mound up this wood, permeating or mixing in, incorporating actual soil and other decomposing nutrition or uh, rather organic matter, then you will have an easier time of reducing all of that woody material. Uh, Andra's original booklet was revised and reprinted many times through the 70s and the 80s in collaboration with a person named Hans Biba, who was another German gardener and a follower of Steiner from the 20s. Those booklets are hard to find, and not many of them have been officially translated to English. So, for English speakers, we don't know a lot about this Hugo culture, but we see this very strange history. Is Hugo culture centuries old? Is Hugo culture as old as the 1920s and, and, and with Steiner? Or is it simply as old as Andra from the 1960s? 
Or did it really originate in 1978? We don't really know when or well, we know where uh, Hugo culture started was in Germany, but we don't know when. We don't know how old. So it's got a strange history. And the most important thing here is for us to discover what does the science say? What does the science say about Hugo culture? And we will talk about that, but I do want to reiterate the concept of Hugo culture here. It is basically a way, it, it gives us a solution for what to do with all of the limbs or the dead wood that piles up. Now, you may be in a subdivision or somewhere where there's not many trees, but for folks who live in the country and other places where there are plenty of trees, they rot, they fall over to the ground. What can we do with them? Well, we can dig a trough. We can mound that wood up into a distinctive form, maybe only two feet high, cover it with sod that we dug out, cover it with leaves, cover it with organic matter like manure and compost, and then soil on top and beat this into the shape of a mound, and then start planting. That is the basic idea. And then as the interior of your mound, which is loaded with wood materials, as that starts to break down, then it, of course, provides nutrition and more organic matter for your plants to grow in. But the limitation here is that the center of your mound is decaying and slowly breaking down, which means that mound is starting to settle. So, because these mounds only last a short period of time, this is not really ideal for growing trees on or shrubs on, right? Because trees and shrubs will be growing on that mound uh, their entire life, which is decades. But the mound only really lasts a handful of years. So, this hugoculture does, right off the bat, have a certain limitation that regular flatland cultivation does not inhibit us with. So when we get back from this break, we'll talk about, is the science good about horticulture? What does, I mean, hugoculture, does science promote it? I think you'll find that just like its history is murky, so is the science. Hang on tight. Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is on the air. Your host, Nathan Wilson, with Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, is excited about providing information every gardener and non-gardener, homeowner, and apartment dweller can use. From vegetables to containers and compost to pruning shears, Nathan Wilson's new Southern Garden Show is here for you. Now here's Nathan. So, gang, today as we get closer and closer to Christmas, we are talking about Hugo culture. <laughs> because I don't think that there's any other gardening topic that goes along with Christmas like Hugo culture. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Hugo culture, of course, is a German term that means mound cultivation, creating a garden on a mound, which is usually appropriate. But this strange mound that Hugo culture tells us about. The center of this mound is made up of dead limbs, dead branches, wood, and then you mound up turf and sod on top of that with maybe leaves, some kind of organic matter, and then you're going into a coarse compost on the next layer. And then lastly, you will have a fine compost and soil layer that you can directly plant into. 
There's another term that has been pretty popular for several years now, and it's called lasagna gardening. And it's very similar to this, that you are creating these distinct layers of different types of materials. And of course, the whole intention behind it is that as the center of your mound, which is made up of wood and maybe very coarse materials that need to break down, as they slowly break down and rot, that gives your plants that are growing on top of the mound more nutrition and more space to grow in. But what does the science really say about hugoculture? Well, we mentioned that the history of hugoculture is kind of wishy-washy. We don't really know where it came from, how it originated. And the science is kind of the same. We don't have any good, real good, peer-reviewed scientific studies on hugoculture. As a matter of fact, by preparing for today's show, I could only really find from the universities some extension pamphlets, and they say that there's really no good science. So for the next uh, segment here today, I do want to talk about the intention of hugoculture versus maybe what is scientifically happening there. And then later today, I do want to uh, come back to my raised beds that I told you I was starting to uh, install in our garden and mention how I may use some of these principles of hugoculture in the raised beds just as sort of an experiment. So we'll talk about that later. But anyhow, there are no real good scientific studies done on hugoculture. So really, gardeners who are doing hugoculture are just relying on popular books and websites maybe for hugoculture information. Um, but what are some of the evidence for these hugoculture methods? What is some ethics? What are some methods uh, for what hugoculture really is? Well, if we look at hugoculture, some of those individuals who wrote about it in the 60s and 70s, they all promote hugoculture as a method based on biological principles, things that are biological. Now, we don't really know because it's unclear what the biological principles are there, and really none that are described in the writings uh, have any references. So, the reality is that this method is really at odds with ecological principles uh, behind the soil building through litter fall. Because see, when leaves naturally fall to the ground or when branches fall to the ground, when we look at nature, uh, they, they hit the top of the soil. They're very rarely put beneath layers of soil and layers of other organic matter. So right off the bat, the intention behind <laughs> hugoculture being uh, supported through biological processes just the fact that these branches and leaves fall on top of the soil rather than underneath doesn't really coincide with what nature really happens. Now, really, what we find when we are looking at these hugoculture pamphlets from the 60s and 70s is that the guiding principles seem to really come from the author's personal observations and, of course, maybe some of those biodynamic lectures from Steiner that we talked about. But... Um, we really don't know real science. So what are some things that science can say about hugoculture, even though hugoculture itself is not well studied? Well, first of all, hugoculture is using an excessive amount of rich organic material. Now, using organic material in the garden and in any planting bed, in any soil, is always a good thing. But what about using maybe too much of it? 
Rich organic matter can be overused. And of course, the directions for building the sugarculture mounds includes using um, a foot thick of dead leaves, a few inches of composted manure, and three to four inches of compost. Usually, what science, uh, horticulture science tells us is that two inches of organic matter on the top of soil is plenty enough. But as those inches and feet of organic matter start decomposing, it can release maybe excessive nutrients. It might even contaminate the soil and leach excessive nutrients into water habitats. So it may not be quite as good. You know, too much of a good thing is not always a good thing. Too much nutrients can be detrimental, not to just your growing space, but also the ecology that surrounds your growing space at large. So even in commercial composting facilities, you know, you and I may go to the box stores or our local garden centers and buy bags of compost. The places where those originate from, these commercial composting piles, if you will, they're actually managed on concrete pads um, with contained drainage so that that mound of compost does not leach into the soil. It's contained onto a concrete pad and excessive nutrients aren't washed down into local waterways and streams. That's where the contained drainage comes from. So the fact that we are increasing this high nutrient-rich area may not be a wonderful idea. But again, hugoculture itself has not been studied. This just comes from the studies about uh, overly excessive nutrient areas that have been studied in in horticulture. Another consideration about this mound structure is really just the practicality of it. The mound itself, the process of mounding can create other problems. You see, weeds are acknowledged as a significant problem and they will colonize the mounds unless they uh, are mulched well. So if your mounds are not mulched well, then it appears and the hugoculture pamphlets do state that weeds can run amok. They can run rampant. So over time, the mounds are going to also collapse as the center, those woody materials break down, and the beds must be rebuilt, as we mentioned earlier. That itself is not very practical. To have to rebuild the mounds every five or six years because the organic matter has been uh, decomposed and sunken. You know, I always, uh, when I'm working with folks in the landscape, uh, they will sometimes mention, and I find this usually at houses that were built, say, before the 2000s or 90s, because when people were building houses back in the day, they had a lot of lumber left over. What did they do with it? If you had extra lumber left over, you dug a hole in the backyard of your new house and you buried it. So you buried the lumber, covered it over, and then several years later, people started noticing these sinkholes, if you will. Well, that is usually a sign if you have a sinkhole in your backyard, that may be where some organic matter was buried and it has sunken and collapsed. And so, well, apparently they sort of outlawed that. So uh, if people are still burying extra lumber, they're breaking the law. But the idea here is the same with our hugoculture mound, that when we bury large pieces of organic matter below soil, that as it rots, that mound starts to sink and slowly just flattens out again. So, of course, this is a structural instability that causes, uh, or that rather cautions us against planting 
fruit trees and shrubs and other things that are going to be there forever. So if you're using this Hugoculture mound, you have to think of short-term crops, of course. That would be things like vegetables, maybe annual flowers, maybe perennials, things that aren't going to be there for decades because these mounds are not going to be there for decades. So that's another failure of Hugoculture. Now, of course, one of the reasons, I haven't mentioned, but one of the reasons that Hugoculture was recommended is for creating gardens on top of, say, poisoned layers of soil. Now, there are areas that may be high in heavy metals. Uh, this is a discussion in horticulture that's not very common, but it is being researched and has been researched. You know, what do we do with soils that may have high levels of heavy metals that are essentially poisoned? Well, the idea, initial idea of hugoculture is that these mounds could be placed on top of a poison soil or a heavy metal soil, and you could grow in that space because you're growing above, maybe several feet above the poisoned soils, if you will. But unfortunately, in hugoculture methods, there is no barrier between the underlaying soil and the mound that was built on top of it. So it is true that contaminated soils with heavy metals and other pollutants can be a problem in our home gardens, as we've already mentioned, but in cases where building these traditional raised beds with soil barriers, that seems to be the only reliable method of actually avoiding those underlying contaminated soils because the hugoculture mound is right on top of the soil and those heavy metals can leach or plants roots can dig can grow down into those layers of contaminated soil so in actuality science recommends if we have heavy contaminated soils that we put a physical barrier that's fairly not penetrable some kind of thick plastic or something on top of the soil and then build a raised bed on top of it so, even though hugoculture was promoted as a way to use space that was contaminated by heavy soil, science doesn't really support that. Now, there is one other area that uh, encourages hugoculture, and that is for food security. Food security, or being able to grow enough food that you can live off of your garden products. But... The, uh, the, the original idea of hugoculture is that a garden the size of 100 to 200 square meters, which is about 1,000 to 2,000 square feet, would allow for a single family to be self-sufficient. But it really takes 2,200 square feet as a minimum to provide a million calories of food per year. You see, an individual needs about a million calories per food to survive, but it is unlikely that even the largest hugoculture bed is going to increase enough growing space to match that million calorie requirement that a person needs to, to eat every single year. The idea with hugoculture was that creating a mound would give you more surface space, and it does, but it probably won't give you enough to be able to even do that. So science doesn't even support that part. Hugoculture's main point here is that using these mounds is a good way to get rid of large branches, uh, deadfall, uh, limbs and things that fall out of trees. We've talked about this, but what is maybe a better way? Well, a better way may be to use it like nature uses it naturally, which is on top of the soil rather than buried below. Because anytime we bury these branches, as we've already discussed, the soil will start to sag and sink. 
So of course you can use logs maybe scattered around your garden beds. They could be a, a um, kind of an instrumental um, design tool too. You can plant plants around them and work with logs and stumps and things. Because see, your biology in your garden, it needs the wood. You know, there are beetles and of course there are other bugs and there are worms that are going to use wood materials uh, to consume and continue to grow and to encourage that wildlife, if you will, placing it right on top where the critters are is a wonderful thing. This is how nature intended it. I'm not so sure that hugaculture is the best way uh, mounding up your layers of soil and whatnot. But we do have to take a break. So when we get back from this break, I'll give you some of my thoughts, getting away from the science, just some of my concerns, and then how I might experiment with hugaculture in my new raised beds. So hang on tight. When we get back from this break, more hugaculture details. Hey gang, it's Nathan. Thanks so much for listening to the New Southern Garden Podcast. Of course, I love providing you with horticultural information to get you growing and growing well. But sometimes you need more than just information. You need plants. So I'd love for you to join me at Lanier Nursery and Gardens in Flowery Branch, Georgia, where you can find me throughout the week. But you can find more than just me, of course. (laughs) At Lanier Nursery and Gardens, you can browse through our wide selection of ornamental trees, glorious shrubs, and colorful perennials and annuals. And I want to thank all our listeners who have already made the trek to Lanier Nursery. It's been a pleasure to meet you and hear your gardening stories. We've got a wonderful crew of folks who are just itching to help you grow your best garden ever. So check out LanierNurseryGardens.com for more information and be sure to like us on Facebook and Instagram. Now let's get growing together. So gang, today on New Southern Garden, we're talking about this strange practice that comes from Germany. We don't know a lot about it. A lot of the research, a lot of the pamphlets and brochures on it are written in German, have not been translated. I, I don't know, somebody ought to take that task on, I guess. But hugaculture, I've also seen many of many people on YouTube and other uh, gardening programs uh, talking about hugaculture and maybe actually promoting it. But today we talked about what it is, where it originated, how it originated, what we do know about it. And then we talked about what science says about some of the practices that hugaculture encourages, even though we aren't clear about what practices hugaculture uh, derive from. So with that being said, I do want to just remind you, if you're just listening, just joining us, that hugaculture is the idea of creating a mound, a a planting bed on a tall mound. Some of these mounds could be as short as three feet tall, maybe as tall as six feet tall. And the idea, of course, is at top of the mound, you have a planting space that is increased because the mound itself uh, gives you more surface area to plant in. But then down below in the mound, at the center of the mound, the core of the mound, is wood and other organic materials that are slowly going to be breaking down, releasing nutrients to the plants that are growing on top of the mound. 
And that sounds all well and good until after about five or six years, the mound starts to collapse and slowly sink because all of that organic matter inside of the mound is decomposing. And of course, decomposing wood shrinks. Uh, think of it this way. Of course, when we are using wood products on top of the soil, like mulches, you may spread the mulch and then a half a year later, you got to redo the mulch or maybe a year later, you got to redo the mulch because you're seeing exposed soil now. So of course, that is what we can see as far as wood breaking down. And it's probably best instead of using this sugar culture method, it's probably best to use the wood products on top of the soil rather than down below. Very rarely are wood products and leaves and things buried under soil naturally. Everything falls all the limbs, all the branches, all the leaves fall on top of the soil and slowly break down. So with that being said, though, it is important to increase the amount of woody products that are on top of your soil beds because, of course, this is a food source for many uh, biological lives like insects, beetles, bugs, right, and worms that are down below in the soil. So be sure to use wood mulches on top or just leave large limbs and logs on top of the soil, decorate with plants around them. As they slowly break down, they will increase the organic matter in the soil and prevent space, as, or not prevent, but create spaces for the insects that we so dearly need. Also, stacking these wood products into a pile, uh, even though it may not be super decorative, I think you could use uh, that in a creative way but by doing that you are allowing for insects to be attracted because insects use wood branches and limbs as places to live over winter and throughout the year so making sure that we are utilizing this organic matter as much as possible is a wonderful thing uh, so now that we've talked about what little research there is about hugoculture, I do want to mention that I have a few concerns myself. Of course, the biggest concern on hugoculture is that slow degrading mound that's, even though it was mounded when you first built it after five or six years, it's flattening out. That's not going to make a good space for trees to grow uh, or for shrubs to grow that will be planted uh, in their spot for decades. You won't be moving them, but maybe it is useful for annual crops uh, or short-lived plants like perennials that are only going to be there for a season or a few years. Another issue that I have that I really haven't gotten an answer to, but what I do know about creating these distinctive layers, even if you're not creating a mound, but creating distinctive layers of soil or materials is quite dangerous because in particular, it affects the way that water will move through that soil. You see, when we have these layers of soil, yes, there are layers of soil naturally. Uh, at the very top of a native natural soil is going to be an organic matter layer, which is full of rich dead decomposing leaves and whatnot. Then we have a layer or several layers of a topsoil. Of course, in the south, we have very little topsoil in that layer. And then down below that layer, you'll have a series of what we call subsoils, things that are made up of some amount of clay, silt, and sand, and quite heavy in minerals rather than organic matter. But if it's a natural soil profile, water usually moves pretty well, unless you're in boggy areas or swampy areas. But when we come in as the gardener, or maybe as a builder who is building, designing a house and having to level off the house, uh, rather level off the land to build the house on top of, we usually bring in these distinctive layers. 
And if we get these layers in the wrong order, then water will not be able to percolate very well. The ideal situation is for coarse materials to be on top of finer materials rather than fine textured soils on top of coarse textured materials. Here's a a good saying. I think I've told you this before, but coarse over fine is quite divine, but fine over coarse much remorse. And the reason is because when we have fine textured soils on top of coarse textured materials, we create what is called a perched water table. Now, a natural healthy water table, if you will, will be somewhere down below the topsoil, somewhere down below maybe into the subsoil layers. But once we put fine textured soils on top of coarse textured soils, the fine textured soils will hold on to as much water as it possibly can until it has fully saturated and only then it will start to leak and leach down into that coarse material. So what that creates is a layer of soil that stays waterlogged after heavy rains and it may stay waterlogged for days after a heavy rain. So in this hugoculture method, (laughs) the center of the mound is a very, very coarse material, large pieces of, of branches and twigs. And then you have leaves on top of that. And then you have a coarse compost on top of that. And only in that top layer of the mound will you find fine textured compost and soils. And soil is going to be much finer than any of those organic matters that are layered down below. And I do think that this is a struggle, whether it's with the hugoculture or say the lasagna garden method, which of course there are popular books on it, but I don't know that the science would really support these. From the fact alone that we are putting all of our fine textured materials on top of coarse textured materials. Remember, coarse over fine is quite divine, but fine over coarse leads to much remorse. With all that being said, as I get ready to continue to build my raised beds, I do believe that as I uh, put the soils in and all the things that the plants will grow in, I think I'm going to dig out the center of my raised bed, dig out maybe 12 inches of soil, set it aside, uh, then stack up lump uh, not lumber but stack up branches and limbs I have a lot of those things that are laying around from where I had to trim trees and cut out some trees I'm going to put those on the bottom put in the layers of leaves put in the layers of sod like hugoculture uh, demands and then use my soil I set aside mixing in with rich organic compost and putting that on top I'm not going to create a huge mound it's only going to be maybe 24 inches tall, but it will be confined to that um, that space in the raised bed. I'll let you know how it turns out. Well, gang, for New Southern Garden and WRWH, my name is Nathan Wilson. I hope you stay well and grow well. We'll see you next week. Hey, thanks for joining us for this edition of Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show. If you have a comment about today's program, you can reach out to Nathan by sending an email to grow at LanierNurseryGardens.com. Also get more information at NewSouthernGarden.com. Join us next Saturday on Local News Radio 93.9 FM and AM 1350 for Nathan Wilson's New Southern Garden Show.